Jim Lang is an author and coach, and today he's using what he learned about himself and his failed marriage to help other couples stop settling for cliches like happy wife, happy life. Jim shares from his experience how some common misconceptions about marriage can be damaging to your relationship. The Legendary Marriage Podcast begins now. If you're feeling more like roommates than soulmates, it's time for the Legendary Marriage Podcast. Every couple wants to have a great marriage, but the trials and challenges of life pull us in different directions. So we talk with amazing couples who share their stories and incredible experts who share their wisdom about building a life together. And at the end of every show, we give you a conversation starter so you and your spouse can build more intimacy and connection in your marriage by having conversations that matter. Welcome to the show. This hey. is episode 131. We're your hosts, Danielle and Justin Williams. Hello. Hello. Guess what? It is summertime. Summertime is here. Oh, yes. Hell's- it is. We've we've uh, breached the triple digits already here in Austin, Texas. Oh, yeah. We're talking to... Or at least it felt like it was darn close the other day. Um, yeah, still talking to friends in Colorado that have had snow in the past couple weeks. So that's a little weird for summertime. <laughs> but, but hey, speaking of Colorado, we have some adventures planned for our family this summer. Uh, and so if you're not already, do go over and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us at Legendary Marriages in both those venues. And super... Follow, follow some of our adventures and, and the... Uh, the laughter that typically ensues. I want to just throw this out there. We are big road trippers. Yep. And we're planning a huge road trip this summer. And what better way to pass the time on a road trip than listen to the Legendary Marriage Podcast. You might yeah. want to subscribe to the Legendary Marriage Podcast. And you can crank through it. And if you're like me, you'll listen to it on like times two point. Do you listen to Which podcasts? listening to you <laughs> on our show at 2x speed is... Challenging. It, it's uh, it's painful. No, it's, there it's, are certain certain uh, podcasts that you definitely like can't Like you suddenly find yourself uh, stress eating because... because <laughs> the, the, what? 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 <laughs> She's talking so fast already. I can't possibly what's going on. Okay, maybe not 2x. Yes. Yeah. All right. So well, like I said, we're going to be having some adventures uh, but we will be bringing you brand new, great episodes every week designed to inspire and challenge you. All summer long, baby. Yes. And speaking of all summer long, every day, something that Justin and I do that's a really great way to build more intimacy and connection between us is the check-in. Um, we share it each week on Pillow Talk, but if you're not familiar, um, jump over to legendarymarriage.com slash check-in. It's a quick way to have a deep conversation with your spouse so you don't always get stuck talking about the bills, the chores, the kids, all that. So check it out, legendarymarriage.com slash check-in. All right. In this episode this week, episode... <laughs> <laughs> Jim Lang shares how his marriage and divorce revealed the lies he'd been believing about himself and marriage in general. 
And now he's written a book and he's talking about inspiring men and couples to look to the truth instead of believing cliches like happy wife, happy life, which is one of my... I know. We're like fingernails on a chalkboard uh, over here. Happy wife, happy life. I can't even not say it without cringing. Not that we don't want us all to be happy. I do but want you to be happy, but it's not you. my responsibility. That's all right. True. Anyway, let's get right to our conversation with Jim Lang. All right. We are super excited to have Mr. Jim Lang on the podcast this week. And Jim and I met a few years ago, very briefly, had a, had a random cup of coffee. And it was just such a fascinating conversation. I remember walking away going, man, I like this guy. There, there's something about him. And, and then I, lo and behold, I discover he's written a, a brilliant book and about, about marriage called The Happy Wife, Happy Life Deception. And if uh, it just really the the title and what I read about it really uh, resonated because it's a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the show. Um, that's one of our like cliches that we bring up that we're like, oh, happy wife, happy life. Oh, oh I hate it when guys say that. It makes me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm super excited to to hear learn more about the book and to get to know you uh, a little bit more, Jim. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Great being with you both, Justin and Danielle. Okay, yeah. so uh, I just have to key into this. You are the five foot twenty guy. Okay, That's right. what is the math? Uh, yeah, you gotta yeah, tell wait. us the story about five the foot twenty. The math behind that. Okay, so that means you're six foot <laughs> eight. eight. Right? Is that what it means? Very impressive. Oh yes, college <laughs> grad, babe. Woo! Mrs. Gernot, my, my high school math teacher, would be so proud of me right now. <laughs> okay, so th this is your part of your identity. You're the super tall guy. Yeah, so that that name came about um, when so when I wrote my first book is called Bleedership Biblical First Aid for Leaders, and uh, Bleedership was like my website and and what I used and and all of that. And I started writing a monthly magazine for Christian business and ministry leaders, and. Um, and it was called Bleedership. And uh, it was actually for like business owners and doctors and, and that sort of thing. And I had a doctor's office who was trying it for free. I gave it away for free at the time. And I did that for like 12 years. I just ended it last year. And, um, and he, he said, hey, I'd like to cancel my subscription. And he hadn't even started. He just was two weeks in. I said, was everything okay? That was unusual. And he said, well, yeah, my wife came in my office and she said, why do you have a magazine sitting here that says bleed across the top? You know, you're Patients are already probably a little bit nervous. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's absolutely right. And I was I was writing a new I was writing a new book at the time called Calming the Storm Within, How to Find Peace in This Chaotic World. And I was thinking, you know, this whole branding thing's probably not gonna work. I need to think of something else. And and I mentioned it to a friend of mine, and he goes, Well, you always tell people when they ask you how tall you are, you say, Well, I'm five feet twenty. And why don't you have that be your company name? And so I actually so that literally is the name of my company, Five Feet Twenty LLC. Instead and of so, talking about blood, you just uh, yeah. talking about your height. I so just a, a funny thing. So when I tell that to people that I'm five feet twenty, um, you would be shocked at how many people say to me, Oh my gosh, well, I would have swore you were over six feet. I said, Nope, I'm five feet twenty. <laughs> <laughs> um, True story. Yeah. True story. 
Okay, so I want to yeah. know, as a kid, were you always like the tallest kid in class? Did you, were you like, I always get the tall thing too, because, well, I'm obviously, I'm not 520, but I was always like one of the tallest ones. And they're like, do you play basketball? Do you play volleyball? Like you always yeah. get like the tall people questions. Like, yeah. can you reach this for me? <laughs> and, you know, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I get those questions too. And by the way, I answer the question about what I, uh, did I play basketball? And I did, but I usually tell them, well, no, I was a jockey on the horse racing team. So I mean, I I do like to have fun with people. And I actually see this as a huge (laughs) advantage. Um, I was playing basketball as a kid. However, I was not the tallest. I was a late bloomer. I was probably the last of my friends to go through puberty. And, um, so I, I, I bloomed really, really late. And, um, so through the process, I grew quite a bit then through high school, pretty steadily. I didn't have any like huge growth spurts, but, um, I grew pretty steadily. And even, even like between my senior year of high school and, uh, freshman year in college, and I played basketball in college too, but I, I, um, I think I probably ended growing, uh, the beginning of my freshman year in college, at least growing vertically i'm still growing width wise well no no we're none of us okay so jim don't you think that like not only physically but do you think that being tall like i think about this all the time do you think it gives you like an edge in other areas of your life like just being tall Oh, it absolutely does. I mean, there's some drawbacks to it, you know, buying a car or finding pants that fit and all those sort of things are certainly a a bit difficult. But, you know, you go to a golf tournament and you can see everything, you know, you can see things pretty well. You know, people oftentimes come up, hey, have you seen so and so? And, you know, you want you know, point them out and all that sort of thing that happens a bit. But yeah, and there's obviously with what I do, um, you know, I do a fair amount of speaking and that sort of thing. And um, I think it helps. maybe bring a little bit more authority, maybe in the, in the listener's eyes, perhaps, and uh, certainly makes me a bit more memorable, I suppose, which could be a good thing or a bad thing. But I've always thought that was an advantage too. like people get claustrophobic in crowds. I never do because I can see over people. There's no claustrophobia. (laughs) I'm good. Um, So where did you grow up? And like, what was your childhood like? What were your parents like? I know you like to talk about marriage. Like, did you always see a good marriage growing up? And so I grew up in Northwest Ohio, and uh, which is where I live today. And my parents were awesome, awesome parents and grew up with some great values. Um, However, I'll tell you this, when I was 18, my parents got divorced. And the strange thing about it is that I never once saw them argue. I mean, ever. And so you think about that from the perspective of of what, so I never really learned that conflict was actually could be healthy. Um, I thought it was something to be avoided at all costs. And when I got married, I thought, well, oh my goodness, if I, if we have an argument, then we're toast. And so you know, that led to a lot of dysfunction in me. And, and I'll talk more about other pieces of dysfunction as well. But um, so, but had a wonderful, wonderful family. I was the, the oldest of four and I have three younger sisters and uh, we're all very close and um, very close with my parents. They're, they're both still living. And um, I want to know, was it a, you know, people always say like, okay, well, when the kids go off to college, you know, they kind of look at each other and they're like, you know, who are you? Or like, why are you still here? You know, maybe we should get divorced now when the kids start heading off to college and we won't traumatize them too much. Like, how did it hit you 
when know. your parents got divorced, even though you were already heading off to college. Yeah, I was actually a senior in high school uh, when that happened. And, you know, to be honest, I thought I dealt with it pretty well. Um, but so again, I was the oldest of four with three younger sisters. So I kind of became the man of the house. I uh, lived with my mom, saw my dad a lot. And, um, and they're both awesome parents. And, um, but uh, I, I think I kind of took on a lot of responsibility um, that, that I probably maybe wasn't even supposed to, or at least I took it, I put it on myself. And so I may have missed a little bit of um, some of those years of having fun, you know, to some, to some extent. And it's interesting. I thought I handled it pretty well. Um, but my mother told me probably 15 years later that she thought I was affected more than anyone else uh, of mm. my sisters and everything, which really surprised me. What made and, um, she just, just her observation to me, she just thought that I kind of, um, just changed a bit and, uh, seeing things from the perspective that I look at now, I can kind of see that, um, quite a bit that, uh, and, and it could have been because of the responsibility I was, I was taking on as well. Um, but, you know, I still to this day don't quite uh, know uh, how that worked. I've worked out a lot of that through counseling and those sort of things. So I'm really thankful for the whole thing now, um, mm -hmm. especially with the, the path that God has me on today and, and what he's teaching me. But uh, but yeah, it really, it really was an interesting thought when my mom said that. Yeah, it, it's it, taking on that that man of the house mantle mm -hmm. for an 18 year old, it, it, it does, it does force you to, to grow up in a different way and a different rate. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm curious, you said like, I probably missed out on some stuff. What did you, what do you feel like you might've missed out on in the, in the midst of that? Well, probably just living without uh, worry and concern about like my mom and worry and concern about, you know, are things to be taken care of in the house. And I, I'm not, I'm the one who's got to take care of them, you know? So it was kind of like the added burden that was uh, put on me. And I, 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 to be honest with you, I didn't know it at the time, but I just did it because I needed, it needed to be done. Um, but I think that's probably just that added, added burden was probably something that, uh, that had an impact on me. Now, didn't you have a basketball scholarship to college? I did at the University of Toledo. Now, how did you balance, like, I'm the man of the house, oh, you know, I got to look after these, you know, four ladies and the house, and, you know, I'm on this big-time basketball team, and I have a scholarship, and I've got to upkeep all that. How, would, how did you keep all that together? Yeah, it's really interesting because I lived, you know, with, Within 20 minutes of the university, I was actually allowed to live at home. And uh, and they actually paid me a stipend, what they would normally pay to house somebody, which was great uh, for me. It was actually beer money for me back in those days, and uh, <laughs> um, so which was awesome. But it uh, but so so it was. I actually during that season, I really learned how to make lists and how to prioritize and how to get things done. And and um, you know, I you know, schoolwork it was very important to me, and so. I just learned to juggle the, those things um, fairly well during that that season. Mm, like, I'm just curious, like, what were you passionate about as a young guy? Like, obviously, you had your basketball, but what did you think, like, you were going to do with your life when you were that age? Well, uh, things I was passionate about, I was very passionate about golf. I played on the golf team in high school, and I played a ton of golf and uh, until... 
uh, basketball my senior year in college. I ended up having back surgery and had a couple couple of those, which has put a, a little bit of a hindrance on my golf game. But I still love golf. But um, but what I thought I was going to do, I had no clue. And my father was a dentist. And so I just said, well, I'm going to be a dentist. And his father was a dentist. And so I went into pre-dentistry my freshman year in college. And um, these science classes were just killing me. And I'm talking to my dad about it. And he said, you know, don't just go into dentistry, you know, look around and, and uh, which I'm really thankful that he did. And um, so I took some other classes and actually fell in love with computer programming, just the logic of it, which just people who know me just crack up because I'm so technically illiterate today, but I was a computer <laughs> programmer. Uh, so I got my degree in from University of Toledo in the business college. So and yeah. then you turned your back on it. Okay, and I'm wondering, I turned my back on it. Justin always thinks that, okay, so Justin has a lot of dentists in his family too <laughs> as well. He was pretty sure it was code for like the mom. No, 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 no. <laughs> no don't talk about that on the podcast. <laughs> Are you afraid you're going to get a mark on your back? I, just, I don't want a fish nailed to the door or something. <laughs> Okay, no, my question That's is awesome. Jim, because we grew <laughs> and, up and, and in he's a, a he's a podiatrist, not a dentist. No, your uncle was the dentist. No, but that's not the one. That's not the uncle I was talking about. Oh, that's not the mobster These one. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Everybody listen. <laughs> Never mind. That's awesome. <laughs> We're in Texas. They're not going to get us here, honey. Don't tell them where we are. <laughs> <laughs> so no more dentistry. So now you're a computer guy, but what made you switch? Cause obviously you said you're not even a techie person anymore. What shifted in you from like, I'm like computer guy to now your computer, you said illiterate. That was your words, not mine. <laughs> yeah, so th this was back when, before PCs were even around. So this was a long time ago. And uh, so I, a mentor of mine, uh, named John Savage, actually University of Toledo's basketball arena is named after him. Yeah. And he took me under his wing and he would tell me all the time, he said, you need to be in sales. He says, what are, why are you doing this computer programming thing when at some point in time, everyone's going to be able to do that? You, know, you need to get in sales. And I finally uh, li began listening to him and reached out to a local company in the computer industry and got a sales job with them. And so I was in sales most of my uh, professional career mm. and, uh, and then got into leadership uh, around that as well. And uh, then uh, kind of uh, had a pretty unique experience, which took me on this crazy path I'm on today. Mm, what's your unique experience? Uh, well, I went to work for an amazing company in Toledo and it was a family owned business and probably the best leader I've ever been associated with. And he had started this company and he hired me to be the first guy to get on airplanes and go call on major accounts uh, around the eastern part of the U.S. Wow. And so I did that. We had an operation in Scottsdale, Arizona and one in Toledo. And um, and so I did that. And uh, within about a year and a half, I was top salesman in the country. Things were going great, making just a ton of money. I mean, life was really, really good. And uh, <clears throat> so about three and a half years into uh my time with the company, the family decided to sell the business to a publicly traded company. And uh, so things changed quite a bit, but they left me alone because I was still producing. And yeah. so things were still good. And then a year and a half later, we were sold again. A year after that, we were sold a third time, all the publicly traded firms. And lo and behold, the new firm came in and made quite a bit of changes. And we found ourselves not in Kansas anymore. And, uh, you know, to quote Dorothy. And uh, anyway, um, 
they brought a new guy in to be uh, to be our president of our company, our our division of of the big company. And he and I hit it off right away. And he said, hey, Jim, I want you to be my VP of sales. And I said, well, hey, thanks, but no thanks. But I've got a great gig going here. I don't want to mess that up. And and he just kept after me for three months. I mean, just repeatedly. And uh, at the end of that three month period, I just started having this little voice in my head that's saying, Lang, if you want to grow in your career, you need to take this role. Um, you know, you need to get out of your comfort zone. And I decided to listen to that voice, having no idea whose voice that was. I was a pretty new Christian at the time. And um, so I decided to take this role. And about a week later, I discovered that that voice had to be the voice of God because I found out that my boss uh, led uh through the old adage that the beatings will continue until morale improves. I mean, it was the most horrific, awful work environment um, mm. I've ever experienced or have ever even heard of. And for like the last year, I was in that role a year and a half. And the last year of that time, I literally would drive to the office with this gnawing pit in my stomach, wondering what in the world are you doing? Mm. And, and, you know, you're subjecting yourself to this abuse, but, you know, I'm still making a ton of money. And I had 25 salespeople reporting to me. And so I didn't want to bail on them because I felt if I did, they were going to get absolutely murdered, not literally, but figuratively murdered by this. We're not guy. talking and the mobsters like in no, no. Danielle. Yeah, he, <laughs> yeah he, he was not a podiatrist. And um, so <laughs> anyway. Um, so I'm sitting in church in December of 2003, and this is going to sound really, really strange to some people, but this is what happened. And I'm really wrestling through this whole thing. I've been in, at the company in this role for about a year and a half now. And um, all of a sudden, um, our, my pastor is preaching about the birth of Jesus. It's Christmas time, you know, obvious topic. And he said, you know, Jesus could have been born anywhere. God has all the power. He could have had him born in a palace, in a gold crib with all sorts of wealth that he wanted to. But he chose this lowly manger next to farm animals and the smells that go along with it. And he said, here's the greatest leader who ever lived, who came from the humblest of beginnings. And I thought, man, that's the total opposite of my boss, you know, because I didn't think my boss had much humility at all. And I flipped my bulletin over and I don't think I heard another word of the sermon. And I just started sketching out some notes. And before I knew it, it literally was like my pen got taken over and I could not stop. And I found myself writing this outline with eight key points of um, eight key areas where I felt like my boss fell down in his leadership capability. And I had this overwhelming thought in that moment. It was just overwhelming that there's a book here. And I knew it was God speaking to me. And for about the next week, I argued with him and said, you've got the wrong dude because I don't like to write. I don't know how to write. I don't want to write. So I'm not doing this. Well, he obviously won that argument. And I ended up leaving the company through a whole nother God story that I won't get into about a month later and um, found myself with all this time on my hands. And I started writing this book in which I took uh, his leadership style and these eight key areas where he felt like he fell down. And I contrasted it with the greatest leaders in the Bible. So I said, in similar circumstances, I said, well, here's how my boss led. Here's how Joseph did it or Moses or Jesus or, you know, other leaders in the Bible. And, um, I mean, I was so clueless about the whole process. I didn't know about getting an agent. I didn't know about contacting a publisher. I didn't know anything. And so I found, I finished the book and I take it to three publishers and they all said, we'd like to publish it. And I'm like, you're kidding me. What? Yes. And then you're like, oh crap, this boss, this old boss of mine is going to read this and he's going to like hunt me down or something. <laughs> well, I actually didn't use his name. Uh, his name is I period M period boss. I am boss. And, uh, oh, oh, oh. in the book. <laughs> and, um, 
And so I actually found out he did read it, but in all honesty, um, he never hunted me down. I was really hoping he'd call me, but, um, he, um, to get I, an autograph copy. Well, he would have seen it as a badge of, he thought the way he yeah. was leading was really the way you're supposed to lead. Hey, and, I'm in this book. Yeah. That's exactly the way I think. He did. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, the, but here's the, the thing that, that was crazy about this is that was the most horrific time in my professional career. Bar none. I was probably depressed. It was, mm-hmm. I mean, he'd be yelling and screaming in my face, like inches from me where I'd see the veins bulging out of his neck, like all the time. And, um, he, it was awful. And, um, but that one thing, the worst thing that ever happened to me in my professional career is the thing I'm most thankful for in my professional career, because it launched me on this crazy path that I'm not on now. And I couldn't, I feel like the most blessed person on the planet to get to do what I do for a living now. You and your spouse could be just one conversation away from becoming soulmates. Whoa, honey, that's a big promise. I know, to make. but I'm making it. All right, but we have been using this one simple, powerful tool for almost a decade. It's radically transformed our relationship and hundreds of other marriages, too. Yes. You see, in the chaos and busyness of everyday life, we all get wrapped up in these five second conversations. Did you take out the trash? What? Did you schedule a doctor's appointment? Yes. Did you get their milk on the way home? What? No. Wait. Who? What? See, why are you I doing mean, this to we me? Get stuck in those five-second conversations. <laughs> I'm having a little a little moment here now, uh, but the truth is that more intimacy and connection begins with more conversations that matter, and that's what the Sachet Check-in Guide is all about. All right. So get your free copy of our guide. From Roommates to Soulmates, How to Create More Intimacy and Connection in Your Marriage in 5 Minutes Without Awkwardness or Ugly Fights Using the Sashay Check-In. You can get your copy today at legendarymarriage.com slash check-in. And now back to the show. Man, you talk about leadership, but that's a big part of what you've done over the last uh, decade or two. And, and I'm curious, because uh, I think there are so many parallels between great leadership and, and great marriage. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, like you, you mentioned, like that first boss and what an amazing leader he was. What, what were some of the qualities that, that showed up in him that made him stand out like that for you? He would give you so much time. Like when I'd get back from a sales trip, he'd come stand in my office and he'd say, well, what's cooking? And he'd just want to hear the blow by blow. He was a sales guy and he'd smile. He'd tell me he's proud of me. He'd, you know, encourage me when I needed it. He would also bring correction, but he'd do it in a loving manner. Um, You know, he was just very much about, he cared about me. He didn't just care about the numbers or, I mean, he cared about the numbers, but he really cared about me as a person. Uh, which was very important. And, uh, but, and he, he was very, um, as a matter of fact, in a meeting that I led this morning, we talked about it this morning about how we're to be very inefficient or very efficient in things or in business, but we're to be very inefficient with people. And mm-hmm. he was very inefficient with people and oh, which is pretty cool. Obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that. That feels very roomy and safe to yeah. me. I'm wondering, so somewhere along the line of this journey that you've been sharing, you got married. Yes. And where did, where did that, how did that come about? How did you guys meet and how did that fit into the whole journey that um, was your career that kept shifting? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
we actually met in college. She was a cheerleader uh, my freshman year and I didn't play a lot my freshman year. So I sat on the bench. And so I watched the cheerleaders a lot. And um, so we ended up meeting that way and uh, began dating for, so we dated for about three and a half years and got married right after college. Um, was she with you all along the journey of like, I'm going to be the computer guy. No, I'm going to be the leadership guy. No, I'm going to be the sales guy. No, I'm going to like, how did she track? How did she track with you in all those different? Um, yeah, she, she was my wife during those, that time for sure. And, um, how did she track with me? I mean, she was pretty somewhat neutral about it, to be honest with you. So, but I mean, she supported me to some extent through that process, but, um, she was good with pretty much whatever I did. Okay. So we have to, we, this is worth noting and I'm way curious about this. I told yeah. Justin, I'm like, this is the number one question I have to ask him. <laughs> so you're divorced. Yes. And I do want to hear about that, but how are you, you know, you're helping marriages now and you write a book about marriage, but you're mm-hmm. divorced. Yes. So tell me about that. Yeah, no, that is a great question. And uh, <laughs> I actually cover that in chapter two of the book. And, you know, so I'm divorced. So why do you want to listen to me? And the reason I believe someone wants to listen to me, the reason that men and even some women come to me for coaching is because of the um, deceptions that I lived under through much of my marriage, especially in my early life and, and my marriage and, and how that led to great dysfunction in me and how that led to a very unhealthy, dysfunctional and destructive marriage. And they were all things that I thought to be 100% truth. And um, I thought they were 100% Christian truth as well. And mm-hmm. in fact, I see how the church kind of propagates these things quite a bit as well. And so it's become really uh, kind of a holy discontent for me um, the way that um, so many people are deceived in their marriages from the way um, the Bible actually talks about how we're to, to lead in our marriages and love and respect one another and those sort of things. And so, All right, Jim, you got to lay some of those on us, buddy. Yeah. Like, what are some of these deceptions? Uh, well, so first one, I mean, happy wife, happy life right out of the get go um, is one that we hear in culture. We hear it in, I hear it in church. And uh, people just kind of assume that's 100% true. And, you know, certainly as husbands, we want our wives to be happy, no question about it. However, we have no control over the happiness of somebody else. Uh, A friend of mine once asked me, he said, Jim, if someone spits on you, does that make you mad? And I said, you better believe it does. He goes, no, it doesn't. It makes you wet. It's your decision to become mad. And the same way, anything that I do can't, I mean, is someone's choice whether they become happy or not based on my actions. And when, when I try to make someone else's happiness, my responsibility, that leads to great manipulation and that I'm trying to control something that's not mine to control. And that's very, very unhealthy and makes, that makes me very codependent um, and trying to, what that led me to do is uh, be a peacekeeper rather than a peacemaker. And from a biblical, biblical perspective, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. He doesn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. A peacemaker is willing to get at the root of things to to bring long and lasting peace. A peacekeeper, on the other hand, which I was a master at, is one who likes to just kind of keep this false peace just so that things aren't horrible, you know? Okay, give me a story here. Like what is like the quintessential story of how you would act out the whole happy wife, happy life scenario? 
So there were certain topics that I came to understand were off limits to discuss um, mm. with my former wife. And so I just, and when we, we kind of went there, or spending was one. So for example, if, if um, she went out and spent more than what we had agreed upon, um, I, I would come and just kind of say, hey, can we talk about this? And it would blow up into this huge thing. And I was very non-confrontational. I didn't like, remember my parents' situation? I tried to avoid it because I was afraid of divorce, to be honest with you. And so I operated from that mindset that I was trying to do everything I could to keep married, to stay married. And while that's a very, I always thought it was a very noble thing, but again, it's controlling something that I have no control over. And in fact, I was, I found out that I was being very dishonoring to God in the way that I was leading. I was unwilling to speak truth um, in which we're commanded to speak truth. Um, it was just a, a hard thing because I, I believe the lie that if I speak truth, that we will not remain married at all. And um, so I just did this. So I just tiptoed it. I walked on eggshells. Matter of fact, the, the subtitle of the book is how to stop walking on eggshells and be the man you were made to be. Mm. And I walked on eggshells for the majority of our marriage. And I thought I was the most loving husband on the planet. I mean, I was practically breaking my arm, patting myself on the back because I was going above and beyond to try to not make my wife upset and all of these sort of things. And so to her, for her defense, she never had any practice in dealing with correction or anything like that because I never would bring it. And um, so, and, and that all stemmed, it was really interesting. It stemmed from an event that happened my sophomore year in high school with my very first girlfriend. And I was sitting, and this is really interesting, and this was probably only like five years ago, and I was really seeking God and asking him, why am I so passive and timid in my relationship? Why am I so afraid of conflict? Why am I so afraid of my wife? Why? I don't understand this. Why is this? I'm this leadership guy, but how come I'm not leading at home the way I'm supposed to be leading? And uh, it was really interesting after about a month of really seeking him about this, all of a sudden I had this encounter in which I was taken back in time. This is going to be another weird story, but I was taken back in time to my sophomore year in high school. I was sitting on my parents' black and white checked couch in our basement. And it was our family room with my very first girlfriend. And she was absolutely beautiful. And, and I am reliving this whole thing. And we're kissing on the couch. And the thoughts going through my head at the time were this. And this will tell you how little I felt of myself. And they were, what in the world is she doing with me? She could have any guy in the school, and yet she's my girlfriend right now. And so that's, that thought's going through my head. And while we're kissing, I reached for her breast with my left hand, and she stopped me. And I'm well before becoming a Christian and all of this stuff, so I just thought she did, right? Uh -huh. And so, um, so she stopped me and said, whoa, you're moving a little fast, aren't you? And I was utterly embarrassed. And the next day, she called me up on the phone and keep in mind, I'm reliving this whole thing. And she breaks up with me. And mm. I, I had no idea how devastated I was. I was utterly devastated. And it was revealed to me then that's where like this fear of rejection came upon me, particularly with women. And the good news in that, in that is that um, I never would make a move with another woman from a sexual perspective when I was dating. And I, so I went through these women that I dated and how they broke up with me. And I think they were like, is this guy going to get with the program here or what? And I wouldn't because I was so afraid of that rejection. Yeah. And so then when my wife and I um, met, we started having sex fairly early in our relationship before being married. And, uh, and so then I was like hooked, right? I, so the level of rejection would have been so much worse. And so I just was unwilling to do that. And I was going to hang on to that for 
ever. And, um, and it wasn't until, so once I had that moment in which that was revealed to me when that happened, I can't explain it. Um, I, I can't explain it biblically, but I can't explain it any other way. Um, it was like I was healed of that. And so I no longer was afraid of that rejection. And so that took me to a place where um, I actually wrote a letter to my wife and I, I actually knelt in our family. I remember it distinctly. And with tears streaming down my face, I asked for her forgiveness for the way that I had not led. And, um, and I said, you know, I am just so sorry for this. And she, by the way, she's a wonderful mother and I'm so extremely thankful that I was married to her for 30 years. And, um, we've had some great memories. And so I have nothing, I have nothing bad to say about her at all. We were both broken and didn't realize it. And, uh, and I take the majority of the responsibility, uh, for this because I allowed it to happen. And uh, so anyway, I asked for her forgiveness and she forgave me. And I said, well, here's the deal. You know, we've been in counseling for a dozen years and um, I'm going to need to see some movement over here. Just, I didn't know not perfection. I just need some movement to move in this direction. Otherwise I, I can't uh, pursue you anymore in any way um, until that happens. And that was with a bunch of feedback from counselors I had about four pastors on my life team and um, a couple who were mentoring me through the process. And um, so it was, and that became a very, very difficult, extremely difficult time. And, uh, but, but so valuable to me um, because I learned so much. And, you know, you talked about Danielle, you asked about other deceptions that I had. And one is in the church, we hear this phrase that um, you can summarize the Bible in four words and tell me if you know what they are, love God and, Love, love people. people. Love people. Right. Yeah. Well, you know what? Huge deception. Huge deception because it seems so true, but it's kind of true. And here's what I mean. That's based on Jesus saying the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and soul and strength. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right. Well, so love God, love people, right? We think that's yeah. it. But we forget the last two words, as yourself. So what Jesus is saying, we can only love others to the extent that we love ourselves. And that, when I came to that, the reality hit me and I'm going, oh my gosh, because I've been allowing this stuff to happen to me, I have not been showing love to myself. And I've been thinking I've been really loving toward my wife, but it's impossible for me to love my wife the way Jesus wants to, because I'm not loving myself well. Mm. And that was this huge wake up call for me. I love that too, because it, you, you kind of felt like, okay, I'm not loving myself well. So how could I, how could what I'm showing towards my wife, like be felt as love? Like, I'm sure from her perspective, I don't know if she ever shared with you, like, what did it feel like to her when you were, it, it kind of sounded like either you were passive or um, like in this defensive or desperate kind of mode. Like, how did that come across to her yeah. when you were acting in that way? Um, it's kind of strange because she would tell me sometimes that she didn't like me in that mode. However, when I would try to get out of that mode, it became really, really painful and difficult. And again, this isn't a cut on her. This is just a cut on our relationship. And um and so I felt like I was in a bit of a no man's land and kind of in a lonely place. And, yeah. you know, and, and I went to, I remember going to a big men's event um, at, at Joe Lewis arena in probably 2005. And the founder of this movement um, stood up and said, you can tell about 
you can tell about the depth of a man's walk with God by looking at the countenance on his wife's face. Mm. And I took that and said, yes, I can grasp hold of that because I'm this goal-oriented, task-oriented guy. So, okay, so my job is to make my wife happy. (laughs) Yes, doesn't it? (laughs) I understand what he's saying, but it totally, because of my unhealth, it just, it just, made me go deeper and deeper into my codependency uh, in, in that, that I needed to do this. And so I gave up more and more of myself. I stopped playing golf. I stopped doing things that I like to do that gave me life because I said, if I just work harder, if I just try harder, if I just do this, that's what my marriage needs. And really the more I tried harder, the worse it kind of became because it kind of just enabled this, this uh, unhealthy dance that she and I were doing. Um, and just made it much, much worse. And so, you know, my contention, what I write about in the book is that um, really the key is not to focus on your spouse. If you are a, a man or a woman and your spouse is, is acting in a way that's somewhat controlling, manipulative or abusive in any way, it's not about them. It's about you. You know, what is going on inside of you that is allowing this behavior? And that's the only thing you can control is you. And I contend, um, especially for men, by the way, I think this is an absolute uh, epidemic in our culture today is this passivity and timidity in men. And we'll talk about why in a second. But um, but if you're in that role right now, I believe it is 100 percent impossible to have a God honoring marriage by you trying to keep the peace, keep this false peace. you know, because you're trying to do a job only God can do. In fact, you're, you're making your marriage an idol. I made my marriage an idol because I was trying to control the outcome and the harmony of our relationship, which is not mine to do. I'm to act in a God-honoring way and let the pieces fall where they may. And, um, and I did not do that for much of my marriage. It's interesting because when we met in, I think it was right before Christmas 2015, um, we met and we had the coffee. It was like, I forget how exactly we got connected. I, I think a mutual friend like did an email introduction yeah. or something. I was like, Hey, let's get a cup of coffee. And, and, yeah. and like Jim poured, you just kind of poured out the story to me and I'm going, nice to meet you. <laughs> and, and I was just struck by the, the, the authenticity and your vulnerability mm-hmm. and your courage in sharing with with somebody who didn't really know mm-hmm. and and now you've you've kind of taken that experience and brought it to bear for others mm-hmm. in this book happy wife happy life deception and I, i'm just like how do you get there how do you get to the place where you're like okay here's here's this mess that i have been that i've created this this owning my part of it and and then like bearing it out for the whole world how do you get to that place yeah great question and um probably have two answers to that the first one is you know the whole story about bleedership and the mess that i had in my career and and leaving that job and making my net income the following year being zero dollars and feeling feeling like another failure but you know writing the book about that and that helping a lot of people and really launching me into what i do now with truth at work and all all those things i work with uh business and ministry leaders and um but and i couple that with something that happened to me um after i became a believer and i joined a men's group and I went with great trepidation into my first men's group meeting. And I was brought up kind of with the adage that 
man, if you're hurting, if you're struggling, if you've got weaknesses, don't share them with anybody. You don't want anyone to know that stuff at all. And so I remember going to this group and I was scared to death. I didn't know any of the five other guys in the group. And, you know, we did this little study for a while and, and then they, people started sharing like really intimate, vulnerable things about themselves. And, Part of me is like, this is really weird. But the other part of me is like, this is awesome. And uh, then they came to me and I shared stuff that I never intended to share. And you know what? They still acted like they loved me. They prayed for me and they didn't act like I was, you know, out to lunch or anything like that. And so this continued. And I remember leaving that first meeting and I felt like the weight of the world had been lifted off my shoulders. That I'm in a safe place where I can actually be vulnerable. And over the next year and a half, Every single one of us went through like a major, major, major life event, a big time struggle. And, um, and I realized me, I used to go through life pretending like I don't have struggles. And I think when you do that, you have more struggles than anybody else out there. And so I realized the power and vulnerability with safe people. And um, so those things kind of coupled together. Uh, took me to this place and I had to go through a lot of healing. So I've been divorced three years now and um, have had to go through a great deal of healing. And it it wasn't until it was about last January that I felt like God said, I want you to start working on this project. And um, so I started doing that and just finished it up. Book just came out in in December. Wow. I'm just so glad that you had those experiences of genuine good leadership of others who were able to, you know, be courageous in, in sharing their lives and, and that you're now doing that and, and sharing that for other, other men in particular, but, but for other people through the, the work you're doing with truth at work, with the book and, and everything. Okay. I've got a question for you. So it sounded like you really started hardcore into the healing journey whether you were separated or divorced at the time, it kind of sounded like the the chapter on your marriage had closed when you were starting the healing process. Is that right? No, I don't think so. Um, I started the healing process much before. We had been in, in counseling for 12 years with maybe you know a, a year or two off during that time. But um, so was continuing to search out and, and learn about myself, but, uh, it was probably about five years ago when, when I had that realization about where the fear of rejection hit me, that's, that's when it really started. And that, after my divorce, um, it was interesting, um, about, was it, was it too late for her? Like you said, you started that healing when you guys were still married. Was it for her? Was it like, well, you know, that's nice that you've had these realizations now, but there's too much, there's too much on the ledger at this point or no, in full transparency. I'm the one who filed for divorce, although I didn't want it. And, um, um, it was a very, very difficult thing, uh, for me to do, but it was, um, just because of some stuff that happened after that, it was kind oh. of something I had to through and I never could have done it. Um, I had about a dozen people on my life team uh, who like independently said, this is absolutely what you, the only thing you can do. Okay. What's uh, a life team. You've referred to that a couple of times. It sounds really cool. Like um, I'm just picturing, okay, not in an evil way, but aren't you picturing like Dr. Evil's like, what's that? What's that? (laughs) You know where he sits at the table (laughs) and then there's like all these 10 people that sit around the table. (laughs) What's What's the thing called? 
I don't know. Okay, never <laughs> mind. Doctor Evil. Okay, sorry, Jim. Okay, so tell us wow. about your life team. I want a life team. How's the weather out there in left field? Um, I don't know. We're talking. <laughs> he's a basketball guy. Why are you talking about baseball? Come on. Why are you talking about Doctor Evil? <laughs> <laughs> so, so life team is is one of the core things that I, I share in the book. There's several core things that I talk about in the healing of of anybody going through difficulty. And one is having a life team, having some people around you. I, I didn't have a team that we all met together. They were all independent. So like I had a counselor, um, you know, a coach um, whom I hired. I had um, this couple who was mentoring me as a husband. Uh, I had a prayer team. I had um, uh, four pastors who were on this, some, some local, some were via phone and, and like Zoom calls like this um, that I would have where I would go because there were times because I was having such a shift in my thinking that was so contrary to everything that I knew to be true. And I'm finding out all of a sudden it's not true. And it just sound, it just seems so foreign to me and having this life team where I could go to them and say, Justin, man, this is what I'm dealing with right now. This whole thing about um, like my counselor at one point in time told me I needed to disengage. I needed to not engage at all for six weeks. He wanted me to go on a fast from caring about my wife. And I mean, I couldn't wrap my head around that because I was all about just pouring my life out and pouring my, just pouring more and more time into our marriage. I was reading every marriage book that there was that was out there. And, and he said, I want you to, to, to do this. It actually took two visits to the counselor to, for me to finally get what he was, was talking about. And so, but, and it also took me going to members of my life team and said, Hey, this is what my counselor told me. What do you think? And they're like, we absolutely think that is 100% what we need to do. I could not have done it, I don't think, otherwise, because I didn't know what was truth and what wasn't, because my, my foundation was kind of being shaken quite a bit, if that makes any sense. And so it was critical for me to have these trusted people who are further along the journey than myself uh, to help me through that. I think you pointed two things there, one being the, like, so many times we 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 get connected with couples and they're, they've been spending so much time and energy trying to work on the relationship. Right. And what, where, where things change is when each person actually does their work. Right. And it has very little to do with the other person. And so this exercise, your, your counselor was saying like, it was about like you dealing with the stuff that you're trying to mask by the relationship and everything. And the second piece that, that really stands out both from the, the life team and then talking about the, the group, the, group of guys that you spent over a year with is just that need we have for community to not mm-hmm. stand alone in the trials and challenges of life. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I love that those two things really float to the surface for me. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, Justin, in that as well is, you know, my life team would, would help uh, support me and encourage me and, um, and really give me confirmation of what I was hearing. But they also would tell me when they didn't think it was right. And, and they would tell me, you know, at times when I would come in and try to complain about my wife, they'd say, no, that's not what we're here for. And we're here to talk about you. So what's this saying about you? And they would always point it back and redirect, which I was so appreciative of. And the community thing is so 100% true. And, and, you know, the, the, Verse in the Bible in First Peter five says, "Our enemy roams around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour." 
And if you watch, matter of fact, that, that word devil, by the way, in Greek is diabolos. And one of the meanings of diabolos is to divide. So he wants to isolate us. He wants to yeah. do that. And when you watch, you know, Animal Planet or something, the lion always goes after the lone zebra. And that's who he goes after. And so that's when we fall into that. And, and by the way, when things are going sideways in my life, I have this built-in inclination to hold up by myself until the storm blows over. And that's playing right into the enemy's hands and you can get picked off then. And so surrounding yourself with loving community um, whom you trust is extremely valuable and important. I think you talk about it from this, from the Christian worldview and from a theological perspective, and it's absolutely true. And and we have so many people, our, our audiences is not all uh, Christ followers. And, mm-hmm. and so I just want to, I want to say like, whether you look at it from that perspective or any other, mm-hmm. there's a universal truth <laughs> to mm-hmm. the fact that we drift toward isolation. Yeah. There, the, the force of the universe keeps moving us further apart. And uh, we have to find a way to be intentional about finding community and connection. Like, don't stand alone. You're not alone. Don't yeah. stand alone. The loan gets taken out every time. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting in my meeting this morning, my truth at work meeting this morning, we had uh, one of the guys in there is a wellness coach and he was doing his, what's called feature member presentation where the whole, one of the four hours is all about him. It's like a state of the union of his life. And he's talking about his business. And he's, he talked about the fact that he said the two things that I think we miss so much in healthcare, he goes, I think these are the two primary things that drive our well-being physically. And, and he goes, number one is, close connections with others. If we don't have those, we're actually going to physically be harmed from a health perspective. And the second one is not enough sleep. He goes, we undervalue that. He goes, those are critical, critical to our health and well-being from a physical perspective. So, you know, what you're saying, Justin, is right on the money. Yeah. Man, I'm so excited for, for this book. And uh, it's, it's called The Happy Wife, Happy Life Deception, How to Stop Walking on Eggshells and Be the Man You Were Made to Be. Jim, like one of the last questions I want to ask as we're wrapping up is like, what hope do you have for men who are picking up a copy of this book? Well, the hope that I have is that they see the deceptions that they have been under. And and by the way, I believe every one of us lives with some degree of deception in our life. And so really that they just come to that realization and they realize that they're not alone in this. Um, Because I'm telling you what, I thought I was the only one going through this. And and there's something about knowing that you're not alone that can empower you um, to know that this is something you can get through and that you can heal and that that's the primary thing that, that you can do is, is actually work on yourself. And if you become the best you you can be, it's going to give your marriage the best chance of being the most incredible marriage you can have. I love Absolutely. it so much, Jim. Okay, Jim, we cannot let you go without letting you know how our audience can find you, what you're up to, socials, your book, and all that. Yeah, so uh, probably the best way to uh, find me is go to jimlangbook.com, and that's J-I-M-L-A-N-G-E book.com. You can also go to jimlang.net to learn more about all the other stuff. Man, thank you so much, uh, both for just for that amazing conversation we had years ago, because it really has stuck with me. And when I saw that you'd written written this book, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to, to reconnect and have you on the show. 
So thanks, thanks for that. Thanks for showing up and 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 just taking a stand and standing at all five feet twenty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all of them, every for single one. <laughs> standing there for yourself and for for every other man and woman who get a chance to read this book and uh, take a stand for their own lives. Yeah, right. thank you so much. So conflict. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where you know. We do this sometimes too. And we talk with other couples, like you either avoid oh, yeah. this it. Is, this is like w- the core of the work that we do with clients all, all right. the time. You either avoid it or you like fully lean into it and just scratch each other's eyeballs out. <laughs> so it's either. The trouble is, I think, and Jim hits the nail on the head where we're doing this peacekeeping thing. Well, guess what? Peacekeeping it's a nice way of saying we're avoiding talking about things that matter. Yeah. And because to me, we don't know how to, to do it in a constructive way. It feels lonely to me because yeah. it feels like the other person is being fake. Like that's not like mm-hmm. a, that's not reality. Like you're not yeah. living in realness. So the connection that you have feels very surface. Mm-hmm. It's not on a deep level. Or it's everything is high drama, high trigger, just explosive which is also very draining yeah so so (laughs) here's here's our little tip of the day take a breath and decide if what you are feeling or think you need to say is something that really is going to help move the relationship forward or if you're just caught up in the drama or in a trigger you know what? That's a really good point. I just real quickly, I was listening to another podcast where one of the people was sharing that when they find themselves in that triggery place where they're just kind of going off the handle, he excuses himself to another room. He and his wife kind of have a code word. And then he goes into the other room and tries to get the bottom of like, okay, what's really going on here? What's yeah. really triggering me? What's underneath the thing and the thing and the That's thing. That's actually really like we have a, we call it our safe word. Yes. Our safe word Don't is tell- pineapple. <gasps> you told everybody your Yeah. So word? if we're in public and, and casually Danielle or I bring up pineapple, and then we disappear for a few minutes, it's because we have something to clear. Yeah. Right? So having a safe word like that or a code word, it's, it really is a great thing because what you don't want to do is in the middle of, of uh, an, an incident like this or a circumstance like this where, where tension is high, is just suddenly turn, I'm out of here. And just like abandon your, yeah, your spouse because yeah. that is that is not good. But if you guys have kind work. of agreed to but something, but if you say yeah. pineapple, I need five minutes. Yeah. Then then we because conflict is about trying to get on the same page, trying to get alignment, mm-hmm. and it's really at the heart of it. Conflict is two people who care deeply about something, about the same thing. Yeah. Trying to find the best way to make it better. I know. I love it. So it's there. Um, so loved his point about peacekeeping. The other one was codependency. Like th- this is another one where we constantly try to make each other responsible for our happiness. Yeah. Got to own it. Got to own your own. Yeah. I love it. And you got to own your own, our own crap and do our own work and create our own joy. 
I love it. I love it. It's not on the other person. Yeah. All right. And now the talk about it. And now the talk about it segment of the show. Each week we challenge you to set a time with your spouse to have a conversation that matters. All right. So here's your conversation starter. Where are we simply trying to keep the peace? <laughs> I know. It feels very convicting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's interesting because like, there, there are places that, no, there are places where we're trying to keep the peace because we, you, we know that going into that is not going to be productive. It's not going to move us forward. Mm. It's just retreading stuff. So you got to prepare like there are, yourself. There are times when you, you know, deep down what the answer is, what the, what you're really going after. And you know, uh, like yesterday I called it out in the morning. Like this is, this is. A distraction for us. Yeah. Yeah. We're just doing it to do it. All right. Hey, good luck so with that it, conversation. So hold on, hold on. <laughs> with those things, put them on your weekly family meeting agenda. Oh yeah. Those things that you're going to yeah. really need to dig into. All right. That's it for today's show. And as always, we're talking about all the hot topics from the podcast and so much more in our free community on Facebook. So come join the conversation at legendarymarriage.com slash community. You can find this episode and the show notes over at legendarymarriage.com slash 131. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show so we know how we're doing and other couples can find us. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Legendary Marriage Podcast. This is Danielle and Justin reminding you. Hey, don't settle for an ordinary marriage. Make yours legendary. Legendary.